Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some 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 good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready, so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Awesome. So, uh, Peter Russian, uh, live on the pod. How are you doing? You well? I'm pretty good, thanks, Russell. Yep, yep, hanging in here in uh, beautiful but slightly dank Scotland this morning. Nice. You're um, having just returned from Switzerland, so it's not all been terrible for you. Uh, no, the weather in Scotland was significantly better than here, but uh, but delivering a week of back-to-back workshops in 85, 86 degrees without air conditioning was uh, was something of a learning challenge, I would say. Nice. I thought you were going to say in 85 different languages. but <laughs> No, that's the embarrassing thing about sometimes operating outside of the UK is that they, everybody is comfortable in speaking English, but uh, my level of German or French is, is limited. <laughs> cool. Well, do you want to explain kind of, um, well, I guess, how you've ended up uh, in, your, in your flat, self-isolated in Dunblane, what kind of came before that got you to this point in life? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, well, uh, briefly, I guess that uh, for around 20 years, I worked with the Investors and People Organization. Uh, so that's really from a fairly early stage in my career. And the last 15 years of those were spent working in Scotland as the CEO of the organization up here. Brilliant job. Uh, I got to work with loads of different types of organizations from big corporates right down to very small organizations. Um, and after a while, so I had a bit of curiosity about a couple of things. Um, firstly, that our job at investors and people was largely to review and accredit organizations. So we weren't necessarily advising them on what to do. But what I noticed was that when we looked at the challenges that they had, you know, leadership was always at the top of the law was at the top of the pile. And yet these were organizations who were probably spending a reasonable amount of money on trying to develop their leaders. So there was a curiosity for that, for me there. And, and then I did a bit more investigation, found that the annual spend on leadership development, apparently, I think is something like $30 billion a year. But if you look at the same, if you look at them, you know, what's the evidence of improvement or return on that $30 billion? Um, there's not much evidence. In fact, the level of engagement, if you base it around something like the Gallup measurement, has either remained very static or even gone down in the last 15 years. So there's something for me in terms of, are we, are we doing the wrong thing? Are we, are we trying to develop the wrong people? And I, I was also reflecting on my own experience as a CEO, 
leading an organization called investors in people so with a team it was like yeah well you know, if we work anywhere what, are, what what's the number one thing that we do we invest and develop people and i felt that we had some short-term success but we weren't able to do anything i suppose create long-term sustainable change and i probably fell into the trap of using the feedback that i had about me as a leader which was oh yeah you're you're visionary and really articulate and really inspiring and that probably i think was based on a tr my traditional or my assumption of what a good leader was which i now would reflect was you know the traditional leader is there to inspire and motivate and to solve problems and to be the person with all of the answers and to get people behind a decision and to persuade people that my way was the right way in a very nice and developmental way right <laughs> and after a while i got frustrated in 2014 i think it's 2014 somebody said oh you need to read this book just happened to have it next door to me so i've got lots of books about leadership and business and i'd finished some of them uh but they kind of divided into two categories one was either kind of um a worthy but quite dull textbook about what leadership and management is or um an egotistical story of how one person single-handedly changed an organization or a city and this was this book was different for me because it was a really captivating story of change but it didn't feel too much about an ego it was a leader writing about lots of mistakes and how difficult it was but it was also really pragmatic and um and there were immediately things i was looking at and thinking oh yeah this would be really, really interesting to do stuff like this but at the heart of it the, the light bulb moment for me was this idea that instead of leaders job instead of the job of the leader being to create great followers that we need leaders at all levels and so the leader leader model which is captured in the turn the ship around but was the thing that really set me on fire so i reached out to david marquet and the team at turn the ship around and we started working together initially informally and then we formed a partnership um, with the organization here and i worked on that for a while maybe a couple of years and what i began to notice is that i was spending 80 percent of my time working on the intent-based leadership idea and so literally and metaphorically around two years ago i jumped ship and uh I've been working with the Turn the Ship Around team since then. My, my core role is to, uh, David describes it as the kind of, he, he's, he's brilliant in terms of standing on the stage and inspiring and telling the story. And I help organizations who are interested in implementing this on a longer term basis. So typical, typical kind of relationship is anything from six months to two years. And we've got one project at the moment, which is, which is a four year project. Uh, in a huge organization uh, with 49,000 people in one team, in one team. And so we're working with them on a, on a four, four year program of change. So that's, that's my kind of not so quick resume, Russell. No, well done. And, and I can vouch for the fact that David is a good storyteller. I know you said he was introverted, but he looked like he was uh, enjoying being on the stage at Twickenham. Yeah, I, he's brilliant. He's, he's, I mean, I, one of the things that I notice is that every day somebody on LinkedIn will post 
either something about the book or there's a brilliant animation which captures the story. And so, you know, he's done something which is to bring this story to life in a way which I think you know, he would himself might reflect, you know, never, never really anticipated that it would capture the imagination in the way in which it's done. But it, but it absolutely has. Nice. So if we go back, I mean, what's the, so your previous model of leadership, what's, what's changed? What do you think leadership is now? Uh, well, I'd say what's, <laughs> what's changed. I'm still practicing. I'm still trying to change at the moment. Um, I think principally, from from my personal perspective, um, I thought that my job as a leader was to do the kind of smart thinking, to work out what the strategy was, and then to get people on board with the strategy. And I remember people, I remember being really offended around, maybe early on in my job, so it's probably about 10 years ago, maybe a bit longer, when somebody said, you see, the thing about you is that you don't really tolerate dissent. So that's no, nothing could be further than the truth. I want people to speak up all the time. But what they really meant is um, I was perhaps quite, I was comfortable for people to speak up, but my job was always to then make them think that they were wrong <laughs> and get them behind my thinking because my thinking was right because that's what I was paid to do. I'm the CEO. Uh, I'm defining the strategy, you know, and um, so I think that's a start. The, one of the big learning points for me was, you know, the, the job of the leader isn't always to be right. The job of the leader is to get insight and perspective from people who are closest to the work, who've got more, the most experience, and then to help make the best quality decision. It's not about leading by consensus and getting flip charts out and waiting until we're all on board and everybody's agreed, uh, which is, again, I think sometimes the trap that I maybe I also felt, felt, fell into. But it's about what do we know? How do we, how do we tease that out from people? How do we get, create an environment in which people say what they really think? And then we can make a better decision. How do we create more dissenters? I like it. Right, yeah. Well, so if you think about it in the context of, from a business or industry perspective, everybody talks about innovation, right? And innovation is a way in which we will compete or outcompete the people who can take what we do and just replicate it and do it cheaper, right? But innovation starts with dissent because uh, if you just think everything's okay, you don't innovate. Dissent is the, is a is a fulcrum of or it's a starting point, which I think we could do something different. Without dissent, you can't innovate. Yeah, I agree. I, I might call it internal disruption, and I think we were talking earlier about we got a call this week where we've got a few people who are in charge of red teaming our current project and going, look, we, you know, yeah, but it's not going to happen when we go back to work or when the team changes some some stuff. Well, you know, and we'll all forget about practice. So um, another kind of, um, and I guess. And to be interested in your views on this. So Clark Laidlaw did a podcast with us. He was assistant coach of New Zealand sevens when I was with England. And I asked him what's different between an assistant coach and a head coach. And he said, uh, opinions versus decisions. Um, so that, and the other thing I notice with really good leaders is that they are able to synthesize information, encourage dissent, but actually their abilities around making decisions are, 
they're pretty strong. Well, I, I agree with you, but I think there's a variation, okay? So or there's a, there's a nuance to this. So, so leaders still need to make decisions. Uh, I'm not, not challenging that, I completely agree with it. They don't need to make all the decisions. Correct. So I think what we're trying to do and the, what the intent-based approach is about is helping people at the right level to make the right decision. Now, if, if the leader of the organisation or the team has got his or her head in the detail of trying to make decisions at a micro level that compromises the ability to be able to make the big decision so one of the things that David talks about is that as soon as he stepped back from the detail of trying to make all of the decisions or being approving all the decisions on the submarine he was able to see the, the bigger picture, literally the bigger picture in terms of how does this connect to it? How does this connect to here? So the quality of decision that ultimately he might make in the end is better because he can see what else is going on. I think a leader who feels that however good they are about making decisions, that they've got to make lots of decisions, I think that compromises the, the ability to be able, able to make what the big calls are. I was talking to a team about this last week with the, we were using the Sullen, the um, story of Captain Sullenberger and the miracle on the Hudson, you know, when the yep. US Airways plane went down. And we were saying, oh, so do you think that in this situation, you want the leader to be telling everybody what to do? And, and people kind of look at that and say, oh yeah, because that's an emergency situation. So of course he's got to tell people what to do. Actually what happened there was that he talks about it in terms of there was one big decision which he had to make, which was where where's the plane going? I'll go down. But that didn't mean to say that he had to be making all of the other decisions or telling people what to do in the 90 seconds or two minutes that they had between the bird strike and the plane going onto the Hudson. And he relied on the crew, whether it was the co-pilot or the cabin crew, to be able to make decisions for themselves. Not They, they didn't need to be told what to do. And I guess also if we see the purpose of one of the purposes of leadership of growing others then and that's pretty important as well yeah because if you're always the person making the decisions a you'll never go home for your dinner but secondly you know, how, how do you expect people when put in a place where maybe you're not there or they can't hear you they've got to be able to make decisions for themselves i think this is this is right at the heart of what we're trying to do is to create decision making and thinking in teams I remember talking to somebody right um, close to where I am in Scotland who had a role I'm not gonna I'm gonna I'm not gonna reveal the role because it would get too close to, to breaking breaching confidentiality but she had an important role relating to, to supporting and protecting people okay uh, in the public and she said oh yeah well I you know I understand what you're talking about here but in the end, I really can't afford for my frontline teams to make any mistakes. So ultimately, it needs to be me who's making the decisions. So I thought about it and we talked about it and I said, okay, so what I want as a member of the public, um, perhaps oh, receiving or being a, you know, experiencing your service, I want somebody who's capable of thinking. Not somebody who just says, oh, I'm just following a process and somebody else makes the decisions around here. So we equate the ability to think with the ability to be able to make good decisions. Nice. And, um, and really transferable to sport because the reality is 
there wouldn't be many coaches that would say, oh, I don't want my players to be able to think and solve problems. However, right. I think some of the, and maybe this is the next question, so some of the skills of people, coaches, leaders around them are possibly preventing them from, from doing that. What's the, what's the skills then that you're seeing or you're working on with um, and, you know, how you would define as people who are leading effectively? So, I mean, the first skill is almost uh, kind of what have I got, what have I got to stop doing, which is I've got to stop just telling people what to do. I've got to stop thinking that my job as a leader, and whether this is in a kind of in a business context or I think even in a sport context, is I've got to be the person with all the all the answers. Um, we've got this. I've got this thing behind me, the ladder of leadership, and the ladder reflects the progress that you can move and you can make working with a team or an individual. And at the bottom of the ladder, the rung, the bottom rung is my job is to tell you what to do. Now, we want to get people up to the stage where they're making decisions for themselves. This is what I'm going to do. That's what I intend to do. But it's, so I, I think there's something ingrained, and I, have, I understand why, that in the identity of leaders, and I suspect in the identity of coaches, we're here to solve problems for other people. We're here and we're paid because we're experts. And as experts, we're here to impart our wisdom and our knowledge and experience. And I get all of that, and I think it, that's vital in terms of how we develop and, and help people to learn. The question is, what, what's the balance between the, I'm going to share this experience, my knowledge and expertise, or I'm going to help you do some of the thinking for yourself? And I'm going to share with you, I'll give you an example from um, some, we, we've, we've, we've been doing some work with Hearts, uh, in Scotland um, and they've been interested in how do we introduce this idea of intent-based leadership particularly into the academy so here's a simple example of the difference between between the before and after so the before um, and to be honest this is how I've un understood uh, and I speak as a lay person not an expert in a sporting or football context so but the before would be okay so we're doing a a set piece training routine for a corner and the coach says okay so right back you're here left back you go here center backs i want you on the six yard line your job is get the ball away that's the before what they moved towards was to say okay so the ball's going to come over where do you think you need to be right back where do you think you need to be left back where center backs where do you think you need to be now were these players at 16 and 17 capable of thinking yeah of course they were so what hearts were doing there was in moving into the idea that you don't need always to tell people what to do in fact maybe it's better that people can think for themselves and make decisions for themselves we so were encapsulated the difference between what traditional leadership looks like and what leadership which is about encouraging people to think for themselves looks like yeah we were talking beforehand about the tottenham hotspur documentary and there's a little bit of that in there so i mean and, and maybe ultimately we'll move on to a place where players are organizing their own practices and coaches are kind of stretching them and nudging them but actually the players started talking on the camera 
Mourinho obviously wasn't there and they were saying, oh, we, we don't do enough stuff that's like this. We just listen to him. He tells us what to do. Right. So I think I'm on episode seven. And the players are starting to get frustrated by it. Um, right. <laughs> and, and that also, I guess, ties in a little bit. So is with the identity. So actually changing someone's yeah. identity and the tradition and the, the real deep rivers of thinking <clears> is like, I mean, it doesn't happen often. It sometimes doesn't happen really quickly, does it? Absolutely not, because it's again what we're what we're really comfortable with. And and the Spurs the Spurs documentary is fascinating. I'm kind of I'm a think I'm two episodes ahead of you, right? The other thing that it made me think about is how does the environment influence learning uh, and how people respond. So what I noticed was that so the. the the academy and the, the whole training complex at Spurs looks fantastic, and they've really spent a lot, a lot of money on it. But what looks like the smallest room in the whole building is the is the room where they get players together to do reviews. Okay, so you see it; they're all lined up, traditional classroom style. Well, what does that remind us of? Remind us about teaching. The job of the teacher is to tell the pupils what to do. They're, they're kind of a five or six years out of school. They're still there in a line. So I'm watching, I was watching it over the weekend and the context was they'd had a poor result at home in the Champions League with RB Leipzig. So Jose gets up and they literally tell the players, this is what you were doing wrong. This is what you were doing wrong. This is what you were doing wrong. My question, and I'm no expert here, so I'm just curious is, if you actually ask the players, what do you think the problem was there? Are they going to be able to work it out for themselves? And if they, if they want people, to, if they want the players to talk together and work it out for themselves together and do the thinking, then it shouldn't be in the smallest room in the building. It should be in a room where maybe they're sitting talking together. But it's really reinforcing the whole idea. Yeah, the job of the coach is to tell and direct. But hey, I'm uh, I, I'm not a football expert, and you know, he's got a great track record. I, I think there's something in this, though, right? Which is, if you look at some, there are certain coaches; they are phenomenally successful with a model of telling, tell, 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 tell. Just as some business people have been really successful with it. Question is, is is it sustainable, and does it work for everybody? Yeah, I guess. And it depends on what we mean by success, doesn't it? So lots of sports recently have had that and they've had some, you know, some fallout in the future in terms of how people were treated and impacted yeah. on their well-being and, and mental yeah. health and stuff. Some stuff I've noticed, uh, the programme appears to be almost entirely about Jose. Um, yeah. He's generally yeah. at the front of the room. Apologies if he's listening. Uh, I really want to move the chairs around. Like, I just want to disrupt the room. And then also, same as you like, well, you've got all the money in the world, so you could have a big screen and people could be active. And the other question you might want to consider is like, so what are we doing in our practice that means we're playing like this? So, right. and, and probably, what a great segue to practice. Often we're not, we're going, well, you need to do this, but we're not reviewing the tape of the training in the week and going, oh, do you know what? Our training, we didn't make them think about that. We actually didn't consider right. that option. So uh, you're two ahead of me. So there's the bit where Joe says talking about the people off the ball. So they're, you know, they switch off for a little bit and it creates an opportunity. And the other bit that they talk, he talks about is like 
transition. So when we lose possession, we struggle. He says, we need to foul more like the opposition. And, but then in that same episode, the players say, we don't do enough games in training. And then also I'm looking at, so how, how often are the coaches coaching off the ball? And they're not. They're generally looking at the ball. The coaches are often stood together in training. And it's all the typical stuff now. Of course, Jose has been successful. Um, but, but he might be able to be a little bit better as well. Who knows? Um, he's got some decent uh, goal scorers now, to be fair to him. So, yeah, so, yeah. so sorry, to go back to practice. So where, how do you see this working with leaders? Like, how do they practice? Right. When do they practice? Is it important? Okay, so, yeah, and actually it, it picks up on something you've just described there. So increasingly what we are moving towards is what we call scenario-based practice or scenario-based development. Because you want to make it easy for people to be able to apply this stuff once they're back out in the workplace, whether that's in a sport context or in, in a you know in a big business or, or, or whatever the operation. So what we try to do when we work with organizations is to identify um, four or five typical situations that leaders or teams face during a working day or a working week. So for example, we were doing um, some work with a, one of the biggest food, produ food producers in the US. And we looked at four or five situations that their supervisors typically face. The, the daily morning huddle was one. What happens when a machine breaks down was another. What happens with somebody who is off for three or four days absent? So we took, let's say, three scenarios in the first instance. We looked at what was happening at the moment. So, for example, with the daily huddle, there was only one person speaking. The emphasis was get it done as quickly as possible, get onto the workplace as quickly as possible, and people were just nodding along. So we deconstructed that and said, okay, so what would it look like if this was a daily huddle which was reflecting the, pra the, the principles and approaches of an intent-based leadership approach, which essentially would be you've got a share of voices around the room, there's a certification of people's understanding, people are being encouraged to speak up. We get people to, th we get people to think about, we don't tell them that's what, that's what you should be doing, but we get them to, to think about how could it be different. And then the day after, right, that's immediately what you need to start practicing. So the more specific you provide, more specific the situation or the scenario, the easier it is and more likely it is somebody will practice. So it's not about, practice in our minds isn't about stop work, go and find somewhere to practice this. It's when in, the, when in your workplace tomorrow will you be able to start using this and 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 what we focus on a lot is change of language change of questions use of some very simple tools to encourage people to speak up we don't typically when we work with an organization or with a team you don't come away with a long flip chart of aspirational things that we're going to do differently it's no here's you think for yourself what are the questions you can ask which make it more likely that somebody's going to speak up? What's the questions that you can ask that's more likely that somebody will be able to start solve the problem for themselves? Nice. Um, 
I just wrote down there, uh, yeah, something we've been doing at uh, Abbott is that no extra time, no extra resource. How do we right. practice into what we do? Right. What's, uh, yeah, the same, what are the, what are the big rocks? And then, uh, and I said to you earlier, we've got the Bouncing Ball Society. So it's right, also right. a cool name. So people don't think it's like the, 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 the two words that, uh, that apparently strike fear into uh, uh, organizations and practices is role play. Yeah. Every time someone mentions it, people are yeah. like, because yeah, I think yeah. there's also this kind of, you know, there's a hangover of some of the stuff we previously did that possibly wasn't that helpful and possibly was, I guess, like almost too much of a stretch for people or feedback wasn't provided in a very yeah. in a valuable or effective way. Um, how do you see that? Because I guess all of this then involves like some good coaching. Right. Yeah, so feedback, that's inter it's interesting. Um, there's some, you, you talk about the striking fear into people's hearts. There's some evidence, I think it was from one of the universities in New York, which measured people's heart rate response when somebody said to them, can I give you some feedback? <laughs> so um, our proposition is... The starting point with this is to build a culture in which people invite feedback first. So you become much more used to saying, okay, so help me think about how could I have, what could I improve here? How could I have done that better? And so we're ready to accept and take feedback. But then the second thing for me, which is key in terms of, so if somebody's invited feedback, our job is only to offer what we saw and what we observed or what we heard. So using, using again this ladder that I have behind me, we'll, the conversation might go something like that. So, so what was your intention when you did that or you took that, led that meeting? Um, what did you notice? What did you see? Oh, this, and then corresponding, this is, well, this is what I saw. How does that compare to with what you were trying to achieve? What do you think? What would you do differently next time? So all of the thinking is being done by the recipient rather than the person giving the feedback. And I think that generally makes it safer, but much more importantly, if the person giving the feedback is doing all the thinking, the recipient is oh, just tell me, we're back into, tell me what to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be a, a, a strong kind of coach development conversation what was your intent? What did you notice? Yeah. Share some stuff without judgment, yeah. hopefully, and, and have some conversations. Yeah. Um, something else that, that's been quite useful, and I, I definitely like your take on this. So we're doing some work somewhere else where we're talking about how we review projects, but actually we, we kind of signpost that at the start. Right. We actually say, look, we're going to, so let's say I was working with you, Peter, and you were kind of leading it. Actually, at the end, Rusty, you're going to review me on how I led you. As right. an example. So I guess the other thing I'm always thinking with leadership is it's, it's an attributed concept. So I, I, I definitely worked with a couple of people who said they were good leaders and everyone who they led would say otherwise. Um, but and how, know, where does that scaffolding fit in around kind of, would you preempt some people of, look, this is the, this is the stuff we're going to, reflect upon and talk about what you noticed or I guess it would vary would it yeah 
so one of the most effective interventions that we have is what we call um, IBL Live, Intent-Based Leadership Live. And, and actually, this is where I think there is some, similar, some strong similarities with sport, which business doesn't normally do. So in a business coaching context, typically what happens is, uh, and I've, I've used coaches myself for a long time and always found it really helpful, but here's the limitation. I have a one-to-one -one meeting with my business coach. Uh, we talk about challenges. He or she helps me think through what could you do differently next time. Great. Then we meet again in a month's time. And the first conversation might be, hey, so we talked about this in our last meeting. How did you get on? And I might say, yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I, I tried all of the stuff that we talked about, but, you know, it didn't really get the, it really didn't really get the outcome that I was looking for. And I'm the only witness in that conversation. So what we tried to do is say, well, how could that be different? So our live approach is where we still might have the conversation in advance. So what's coming up? Let's talk about a situation or a meeting or an activity. How could you use the practices of intent-based leadership to get a better outcome? But then instead of the coach walking away at that point, we're in the room and we observe the conversation. And then afterwards, we might talk to some of the people who are the recipients or other part participants uh, to get a bit of perspective from them. And then we go back and we have exactly that intent-based conversation. So what did we talk about? What I saw was this, uh, because the reality is then you're dealing with what actually happened rather than what was reported to have happened. It's um, this whole, one of the things that we like when we work with organizations is to get as close to the reality of what, how do people really behave? So one, one of the things that I do sometimes is that um, we might, let's say we're having a workshop, right? Uh, and in the first hour of the workshop, people, people might talk about, okay, you know, well, this is my style. I'm very much somebody who, who lets people get on with things. I'm hands off. Oh, that's really interesting. And then I say, okay, so, just thinking about your phones today, if you can all put your phones in the middle of the table because we're not going to, uh, we're not going to need them for the rest of the day. And the reaction might be, oh, well, uh, actually, I need to make a really important call into my team or I've got to do. So their, their, their behavior in relation to their phone reflects their actual behavior rather than their reported behavior. So we're quite keen on terms of understanding what really happens in the workplace. Nice, yeah. That would that would resonate with me. <clears throat> I did a day's work with, with Kirk at Google and they told me it was digi-free and I entered a mild panic as, uh, as I turned my phone off for 24 hours um, and realised there was no slides or anything and we were just like, not not literally, but metaphorically naked in a room together. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, uh, yeah, and I guess that's another, uh, I might use secret missions, so I actually use that to grow other people's awareness as well and get them to be the observers and share feedback. I'm with you that actually seeing people in their environment, especially when it's probably quite a, you know, as you get, as you build trust, some higher stakes meetings where you might, <clears throat> you might see some true colours is, 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 is important really. I was def I was then interested really, so would you, uh, what would you measure so would you go look would, would you attend to stuff would you measure stuff would you be going look you've 
you know the, the person goes look i'm actually going to practice this and actually could you just keep a record for me peter of how many times i ask questions and right. people kind of lift their eyes and think or how many times do they lean forward in a chair or do you, do you look at that type of stuff as well yeah so one of the things we're really interested in is what we call share of voice so what does that sound like and the, and the evidence google did a really big project i think it's 2014 called the aristotle project and what they were trying to do was to understand what were the factors that influenced or were indicators of high performance so predictors of high performance in teams and what they concluded was that um the biggest driver uh, of high performance was psychological safety and when they then try to understand a little bit more what, what does it look like when a team feels psychologically safe it's that the share of voice across the team it doesn't need to be absolutely equal that would be that would be a bit weird but it's more balanced so who's doing the talking um is it always one person tending to dominate the conversation that's by the way that's where that's where i was 10 15 years ago that the if you'd listened in to meetings which i had been leading it was probably more my voice that you would typically hear more than anybody else's. So share of voice is a good measure for us. I was working with a, a group last week um, in Switzerland and one of the things I was saying to them is in your next meeting, just, just note down the number of questions that people ask and whether they are closed questions or open questions. Because again, that's a really simple measure of the level of curiosity that a leader has in the room as to whether the intention is genuinely to open up the conversation or simply to get somebody to agree with the path that you you've already determined that goes goes back to this first documentary yes jose's com having conversations with particularly with delhi ali and i'm sure his intent is to build the relationship but most of the questions are either closed questions or this is what I think. Do you agree with me? Yes, I do, Jim. Yes, I agree with the other boss. Yes. Yeah. Now, sometimes people think, oh, you know, this is really, really simple stuff. Everybody, I think, understands the difference between a closed and open question. But it's the difference between understanding and then listening and practicing we think is really important. So, again, the number of questions that are asked, the type of questions which are asked, whether people ask questions to disrupt somebody else or build on somebody else's contribution would be another measure yeah i'm um, <clears throat> i'm pretty hungry to learn listen to questions and work out which ones are kind of almost high impact questions killer questions um we did something last week with abbott and uh the, the like the depth of questioning was like blowing my mind right questions that were just really like yeah, so just really delving in deep with people. And I guess often it takes a while to get to that place where we ask those questions. The other thing that well, you mentioned about share of voice is that I think people, if you ask the attendees in your meetings, they would be really aware of it, <clears throat> except you're not. So yes. Um, yes. just that ability to, I just spoke to someone today and she'd just done a 360 and I said, how was it? And she said, so useful. Like stuff i hadn't considered like i do just do all the easy stuff on the list first right, right, the right. Other stuff and jumps from list to list and 
I don't think I actually knew. So people would, so I had a message off a player the other day <clears throat> and, and he's a Prem player and he said, oh, um, we just sit in a, we sit in really long meetings listening to one person speak. <laughs> and, like, and that's cool. I mean, I guess maybe that's for your intent and yeah, you think that that's important. I mean, it's something, so David's second book, is it the uh, Language of Leadership book? I'm sure you've got it near you and I'm, hopefully I've got the title right. Funnily enough, I do happen to have a copy. Yeah. Leadership is language. Yeah, what, I mean, what what do you think people would, I mean, I think it's a brilliant book as well. What's the, what's the stuff that when you read that book, you thought, oh, wow, yeah, that is, that's brilliant. I love that. Well, it's the, the, the premise of the book is that much of our language that we use as leaders is stuck in an industrial form of language, which the priority was get things done as quickly and efficiently as possible. Um, and as we move and evolve into a, well, maybe we've not evolved, we've been in it for a while, but a more knowledge-based economy, then that language needs to evolve and change. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the phrases that, again, I used for years and years, in fact, I took it from my mentor. I had a mentor that I worked with for two or three years, and she was fundamental in in my own development but one of the things she used to use all the time was does that make sense does that make sense that's a classic <clears throat> i used to use that all the time and i've now right. got rid of it right but when we been, we were, when we talk to leaders about this they say yeah but my intention is is good it's it's positive i'm checking yeah i've been thinking but actually what you're asking you might be asking is are you capable of you know, oh <laughs> You know, please evaluate my capability to explain things to you. Does that make sense? And this is where often what we do is we never, we always try and avoid saying, if you use language like that, you're a bad leader. That's not the case. It's if you're interested in developing your team, being a more impactful leader, then think about the language that you should, should change. And that's, that's really at, at the heart of the heart of the book. Um, and there's a, a brilliant, if very moving case study um, about a, a, a massive container ship that set out on a completely routine operation in 2015, just to sail from uh, Florida down to Puerto Rico. And they say the crew sailed, or they, the ship sailed into a hurricane and sank. And it just should never have happened. But a lot of what happened was because the crew didn't feel psychologically safe to do something different. The captain tried to reassure the crew probably too much. And so they ended up in a situation where decisions were not made. Uh, and when they were made, it was too late. It's it's incredibly powerful, but to me, it shows how you know very small changes of language can can almost be a life and death, if not to literally to people, but to organisations and teams. Yeah, I mean, hierarchy will get in the way of a lot of stuff. I I uh, so I, I always used to say, does that make sense? And then a little kid went, no. no <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. right, and I, right. Uh, you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to just say yes and get on with it. Um, right. And actually, so I, I, and I realised I was doing a lot when I was tutoring. And actually, I just changed it to uh, which part of that makes the least sense. Right. And I've got some unbelievably rich answers that I would have never got if I just went, 
does that make sense it's a bit like the good morning how are you yeah good how are you yeah how are you yeah, yeah, we, right, right. we're just like we're yeah we're just doing what we've always done i guess a, a little bit then you also triggered me a little bit i caught up last week with Owen eastwood and we were we were talking almost like about pre-industrialized societies so right. i've been to uh, samoa and one of the things so i I'm doing a bit of uh, stuff with New Zealand Sevens, and I spoke to Tom, who's their analyst, and he said, uh, I said, what's the best thing about New Zealand Sevens? And he said, the singing. And I was like, like, said no other, no other high-performing <laughs> team. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> although Fiji would be the same, and it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, he, and then I, I mentioned this to Owen, he said, well, why wouldn't you sing? Because it releases endorphins. Yeah. And they're four times more powerful than the morphine, and they are painkillers, and they are connect people up. And but we've come so far that that would now seem ridiculous. So I was really intrigued by, yeah, I mean, guess, yeah, leadership and teams and how that works in in, in societies that are very different to ours. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess some of your stories in the book across the books will. So clearly the submarine and, and I mean, it's, you're just looking at some different contexts really that are, and then taking some principles across. Yeah. So sometimes as people ask the question, you know, does this mean different things or is it more relevant in certain cultures or certain types of organizations? We found, we found no evidence that would support that. I mean, I've worked in uh, many different parts of the world. Um, the, I don't think it's about necessarily about culture. I think sometimes context might be important. Um, sometimes it might be about the the level of engagement and commitment that the that the senior leaders have got to this type of stuff, or is it just you know lip service? Oh yeah, we need to do something. I think a key factor for us in terms of the projects that we've been involved in is typically if it's the CEO who says, this is how I want my organization to operate. The, that is a strong predictor of success. Yeah. Um, so at some stage, you've got to create the buy-in from the senior team to say, this is something which we know that is important to us. And by the way, it's not about us expecting our other people to do this. It's about everybody in the whole organization working towards trying to get there. No, you'll, never, you'll never have a perfect situation. But what you want is, you know, if you stick a pin in the organization, you'll see somebody maybe trying to, to use this type of approach or change their language or to work in a way which is encouraging people to think. Nice, yeah, I was, that was something I was about to ask was like, have you ever seen it work kind of bottom up? Have you seen where, you know, the dissenters have, have maybe influenced a, a, a business, a, an environment? Uh, without the support of the CEO, and they've convinced the person at the top. Um, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I don't mean to say it's not going to happen. What what I do see is that once teams start engaging with this, it's quite difficult to stop. So goes back. I think maybe what I was saying earlier on is that traditional leadership development focuses on a small number of people at the top of an organization what 
this approach does is it, it's leaders at every level. So it's about everybody in the organization. And one of the powerful things that that does is it, it means that right through the organization, people will begin to be familiar with the fact that uh, we're going to be talking about intent and what people intend to do. Um, people will anticipate and appreciate that their, their line manager might be asking questions in a slightly different way. But they themselves can start using the language of saying, well, this is what I intend to do. So that builds an expectation upwards. And the difference, I think, between a traditional approach and this approach is that there's, everybody is aware. Everybody understands what should be happening. Whereas with a previous, you know, traditional leadership development, only a small number of people knew what that was about. So uh, could, could leaders be held to account by their teams if they weren't practicing whatever they'd learned? No, because nobody, nobody particularly knew. So what I would say is that um, bringing everybody on the in the organization through as part of the, this type of change program is, is key. Right. And, and sharing it is, is powerful in my experience. Yeah. Um, so one of my principles I think a lot about is like uh, feed the hungry, follow the energy. So right. clearly you would, you would, you, what you're talking about is actually throughout an organization, there'll be key influencers and yeah. they can be at whatever level. And actually if we support those people um, and there'll be lots of organizations where there'll be a couple of people and sporting clubs are the classic. So who's yeah. Yeah. Who's your renegade age group? Oh, Rusty, yeah. it's the 15s and the 16s. They think they're different. You know, they're, they'd say it's really serious at that level and we need to tell the kids what to do and we need to do this. And interestingly, I actually think that's kind of becomes the age, certainly in rugby, like I look at some kids in 11, 12 and think, wow, you're so, you know, so much potential. And then we just start putting them in a smaller, yes. right, right. smaller box until they do what we've told them to do. And, yeah. and they're, they're as poor as we were at rugby. Um, what's your advice around that, around, you know, the people that might be handbrakes? Uh, yeah, good, great question. Um, so there's a balance. Um, you have to acknowledge that people have got experience reservations skepticism right our job is not to change people's beliefs it's to change their practice so i was working with a client in the uh in the us last year and uh it was a sign it was an innovation science based business and um some very experienced scientists who, who effectively the message was been there done this yeah 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 we've seen all of this change stuff before there's nothing, you know, why is this going to be any different? Literally with a standing with their arms crossed. And so I turned it around and said, well, you know, experimentation is right at the heart of what you guys do. All we're inviting you to do is to experiment and see what happens. Because we believe that we change, we act our way to new thinking rather than we think our way to new action. So you, you don't change by changing your beliefs in a workshop. You change by giving something a go and seeing what happens when I tried asking a different question or what happens when I use some, a tool which helped people to speak up. What did I see for myself? And if I see the evidence for myself, I'm more likely to try it again next time. And so you build that change of understanding. Now, the other thing is that I wanted to say is in that context is sometimes people try and they don't get it right. But we always have to acknowledge it. 
So with the same client that with the scientists, one of the things I heard in a different part of the organization was from people closer to the shop floor, I guess, was, oh yeah, uh, well, your boss has tried this, but I mean, she got it, she screwed it up. She got it really wrong. So, so I said, but what did you say to her? Well, we didn't say anything. Okay, so how likely is it, do you think she's gonna try it again next time around? Uh, I don't know. So whenever, whenever somebody tries something new, I think there's a if there's an onus or there's a bit of a responsibility on the team to say, hey, that was interesting. That was great that you're trying it because nobody's going to get it. Well, it's unlikely that people are going to get it right first time. But if you don't get any of that feedback, then are you likely to try it again? I don't know. Yeah, really valid points. And I'm thinking a lot of coaches who are going out post lockdown with lots of ideas in their head and yeah. might go and try some stuff and it might not go so well. Right. But, but I mean, I think we often forget that like learning is a struggle and takes time. Yeah. We weren't, you know, we didn't get to where we were like, like that. And so, yeah, just that support from your peers and, you know, you know, and probably some support with, so what next? I guess if the whole organization knows, then those convers those learning conversations just become really normal. I, sp I guess that's where you're, where you're trying to get people to. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, uh, right at the, at the grassiest end of the grassroots of coaching, right? So I'm a, a volunteer coach for my girls' under-9s football team. Um, so at this stage, I'm, I've gone through my approval. I haven't had any training, so I'm largely there to help with crowd control. And I've got some colleagues who've been through with the SFA proper training. And um, so a couple of things I was reflecting on that. One is that, they tried an exercise for the first time, exactly as you, exactly what you're describing. They tried it for the first time, it was 10 days ago, uh, and it didn't work brilliantly. And I could see one coach who was saying, yeah, that wasn't very successful. But the other said, yeah, but let's try it again next week with a little bit of variation, with a bit of variation. And I asked my daughter, I was away last week, how did it go? Oh, she said it was really interesting. They did the same thing. And I said, was it, did you? Did you feel that you'd progressed? Yeah, we definitely got, we scored more points. Great. And then the other thing I'm reminded about was, so, so three weeks previous to that, and this is like my second time there, they said, they were obviously looking for me to, hey, let's give him a role. <laughs> so they said, hey, Peter, uh, why could you, could you manage a warm up with the girls, you know? So I said, yeah, I could do that. And immediately I'm like, uh, but these girls have been warming up for probably a year and they've done warm-ups for a year. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to start asking questions. I said, hey, girls, tell me what the key exercises you do when you warm up are. Da -da -da -da. Well, we do this, we do this, we do this, we do this. Okay, which ones, are the, which ones do you enjoy the most? We do this. Okay, so I want you to warm yourselves up. Now, they're under nines, but they're capable of thinking for themselves. Now, if we asked them, if we went and said, oh, so you're centre-back, where should you go? They can't, they're, they're not at that stage. So we call this tuning control to competence and clarity. So on that occasion, my need was to give them control of the warm-up, but I knew that they had the competence to do it because they'd done it before and they knew what the clarity, what, what's the purpose of this? And as you work up, I think you could apply that that principle, tune control to competence and clarity, 
to the level of knowledge and understanding and experience that people have got. I like that a lot. <clears throat> By the way, you should be running all the warm-ups, Peter, and not letting the girls run the warm-ups, seriously. <laughs> uh, and simply as, you know, even just signposting the girls and saying, look, we're going to, we're going to try something different this week. Right. Yeah. We'd, love, yeah. we'd love your feedback because yeah. we want to make it even better. Or, yeah. you know, 10 minutes, in, let's, you know, girls, how would you make it better? Yeah, yeah, right. They'll probably have the competence to, to know that. Yeah. What have you noticed? So as someone who, you know, be, it's interesting, isn't it? We have lots of people I know who are coaches or work in leadership and then they go down and they do grassroots sports. And, I mean, what have you noticed? Oh, my, oh. <sighs> <laughs> so in competitions right on the sunday morning you obviously then get to observe the different coaches in action and i mean i'm just head in my hands with i mean it's not a majority by any means at all but you know that every every tournament you go to so maybe there's kind of six teams rotating around there's at least one if not two coaches who think that they are Alex Ferguson. I mean, actually, not even that. It's even, go, go, do, go there, go there, do that, come on, what are you, just... And they're literally not only shouting instructions, they're calling them out and, uh, you know, come on, come on, oh my God. Yeah, we've taken, we've taken competition away in rugby up until a certain age because right. of the behaviours, but it, it would definitely right. tell you with your stuff around well, you've got to go and see someone in their context because those guys will have been accredited. I'm assuming they're guys. Um, yeah. They'll have been accredited. They'll have been on some courses. They'll have, yes. they'll have had a DBS check done. Yeah. It's scary because yeah. there's some stuff. And it would be the same across lots of sports. And that's the thing. So even, so even having like a, you know, some idea around where you want to develop and get better, but in a sporting context, you definitely need to think about match day because yeah. suddenly the parents are there. Someone keeps, someone's keeping yeah. the score and, and yeah. behaviour will change. Yeah. Um, and they're probably not going to be Alex Ferguson. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they need that feedback from you. Um, I'm assuming they haven't invited you for any yet. Um, <laughs> what, what else have you noticed? Uh, I think in um, hmm, interesting question. Um, the, with the team that I work with, uh, we've got a cross-section of coaches. So one of the guys is Dutch, and so his approach is very well. I, I, I always like, like listening to him in terms of what his approach is. It's very well, well thought out. His preparation is excellent. Um, the focus is on... Well, the focus actually all that there's let, let me let me expand it a little bit. The focus all the time is still about skills, and I think that's probably right at this age. Yeah. The question I guess in my mind is when does the focus begin to be about what's the right thing to do or what's the right decision that I'm trying to make? And I'm interested in that balance. And I don't know what your perspective is. Is you know, as you move up through in whatever sport, what's the point in which the balance of the coaching moves from simply I am focusing on the technical development of the, the, the technical capability through to the thinking capability. Um, and I don't know, what do, you, what do you think? 
Uh, I think they sit alongside each other, so every yeah. action or every technique would um, would be in context, and therefore there'd be a decision. So I think that I would want to coach skill, um, but I would want to coach decision making as well. So the type of things I would use a lot as a coach. I mean, I would. My bias is definitely towards playing lots of games. Clearly, we can vary size of pitch and numbers to depending upon what we want to coach and <clears throat> how many touches we want people to do and how much success and and we could have underloads and overloads. So if we want them to have some attacking success, we might have more overloads. But I would use a lot of freeze like call. Cool. So if you were to, you know, if 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 Peter was about to, if you were Peter, who would you pass to next? Um, yeah, so I would yeah. create connections as well through questions like that. Uh, I would use replays a lot. So do you want to have another go at that? Because yeah. the reality is, great decision. Actually, probably need to practice that skill. Of course, we can still take people away and go, look, ideally they would choose. Uh, and they would choose to go and practice some skill with a coach or without a coach. And, you know, it's something that they needed in the game. So I think it would fit in with all of it with me. And, and so if we're talking about coaching decision-making, I mean, if in a tournament someone is getting shouted at and called out, yeah, yeah. we ain't making that decision again. No, so, no. you know, there's so much complexity to me to decision-making. And clearly at that age, you know, the, the reaction of your peers, the reaction of your coaches, the reaction of your parents, two to three seconds after you, you do something, well, that's a, that's a big influence on decision-making, as is your skill. So, you know, I'm, I would be going, well, I'm assuming everyone is, you know, we're playing some games where it's one point for a pass, but it's two point with a non-dominant foot. Maybe it's right. three points for a pass if you fix two defenders. So you understand, actually, that's a good decision to pass at that point. Um, so scoring systems, it sounds like the coaches are playing around with scoring systems are a good way to, yeah. to influence decision-making. I guess if you if I think about it, and again, I'm very cautious. So I'm no, I am. May I make this stuff up as we go on? Right. So if you look at the characteristic of every of, of every game at an under nine level, the characteristic is that the girls all chase the ball. Yeah. Right? So one thing that you want to change is, step back. Don't all chase the ball. Think about where you need to be. And for me, that's the. That's the, that's the toughest thing because that's about thinking. That's the decision that I'm making on the pitch. And, and even at this stage, that you know, I can see that the girls have all got talent in terms of the way in which they can control and pass the ball and kick the ball. The difficulty, I think, and I'm, so I just acknowledge it's really difficult, is how do you develop that decision-making? So when somebody literally is able to stop and think, where should I be here? rather than my instinct, instinctive, which is, I'm just going to chase the ball. I'm going to send you some stuff on Amy Price's work around video game design. Brilliant. She does some real good games where people are in different zones. The other reality is, so I was at a hockey session and, and everyone's following the ball around. Well, of course they are, because no one can pass the ball more than five metres. So right, they're actually right. being re- it's a really good decision to yeah, stand yeah. near the ball because if I stand over there, I'm not getting the ball because no one yeah. can that far. So there's also, for me, an element of how are we, you know, upskilling them with the actions they need to, to do those things. The other thing in football I'm always thinking again is like, and same in most invasion sports, underloads, overloads. So actually, 
if we want them to have more opportunities to pass, we probably want to have more players in attack. So in my world, you might go, well, we've got two magic players who are always on attack. Yeah. And, and therefore, yeah. it's always a six on four either way. And we might pick those players as the best passers to support everyone else, or we might pick them as the people that need the most support. But, um, but once again, I'm just making stuff up. One more thing that you've noticed. I mean, this is awesome because yeah. you're the naive expert. I was going to ask you, like, so where do, where do you think, like, the psychological stuff and the, and the leadership and those type of kind of hard skills fit in around the, the football coaching and, yeah, maybe reference what you're seeing at tournaments as well? Um, uh, so that's a really interesting question. I think... As I'm, uh, I'm reminded about what you said uh, about the the boy who said when you said, "Does that make sense?" Yeah. <laughs> he said, "That's not." But that there's something there which is at that age there isn't there's no sense of a power or for that we guy there was no sense of a power gradient and he just could say, "Oh uh, no, it's so what happens?" So, oh, here's so this is what I'm thinking now, right, Russell is. At an early stage, if you, again, think about all the girls, can imagine a group of 15 girls, nine-year-old, they're all chat, 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 chat. So one of the jobs of the coach is, okay, settle down, girls, and I want you to focus on what we're trying to do. And then you know that there's going to be one or two questions which are going to be asked, which are completely, you know, off the wall. Or my daughter will be doing a handstand whilst the instructions are being given. So the instinct, I think, is to move into a more directional, no, come on, girls, you've got to do this. And I wonder whether that's a starting point in terms of which we're gradually then closing down this idea of dissent, because we don't, because dissent as we go through represents, I can hear feedback, I can hear chat back. And we do that motivated from a positive sense of, I want you to concentrate, I want you to focus, I want you to listen to what my voice is. But in the end, we get to a point where we say, no, we don't want people just to be listening and obeying that voice. We want people to be thinking, maybe this, what does this mean for me? I want to ask a question. And I'm reminded about, there's a great example, which is in Matthew Syed's new book, um, on the, uh, about an, uh, the Everest expedition, which went so badly wrong, when the motivation of the expedition leader is a guy called Rob Hall was he wanted to make sure that if he needed to make the big decision to turn the group around and go back down the mountain because it wasn't safe, he didn't want anybody to argue with him because he, he needs to make that big call. Problem was, he said, mine is the only voice we're going to hear. I will tolerate no dissent, no appeal, nothing. I'm in charge. And then what happened was that a storm began to develop in the valley below. One of the members of the group, who was a pilot, but was a guest, spotted it, but had heard the words, which is, I tolerate no dissent. So he didn't speak up. And half the crew, half that group died because of the un un unintended consequence when, the, when a leader says, I have to make the decision, or the unintended consequence of saying, I don't want to have dissent in my group or my team and I just wonder whether there's something there which is as we try to control our players as we try to control people more and more 
the consequence is you stop them thinking and then you stop the descent. So much exists of that in sport. Um, and yeah, maybe just pull a few of the girls in and say, we're going to play a game of Chinese whispers and you've got to go and tell the other girls, you've got a minute to do it. Or maybe have, you know, <clears throat> each week have different captains for teams and come on, captains, can you come? Here's the rules of the game. Go and tell the rest of the team type stuff. And your daughter can do a couple of handstands while the coach is speaking to a couple of the girls. Yeah. Yeah. We can help them with that kind of stuff. We, you know, we might give them a whiteboard. They can draw it on or whatever it might be. Um, the other thing I, know the other thing I just thought was you, you actually don't need to tell everyone that they can't dissent. You just need to tell one person and other people hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, don't exactly. think, you, you might not have told the whole room. You might have yeah. really loudly told one person and the whole room are effectively. So those kind of moments, like all the time, as I guess as a leader or a coach or a, you know, you've, intent is critical. So the, and the other thing just reflecting this is, what do I notice? It's, I guess it's about the intrinsic motivation of the coaches. So they don't need to, the coaches don't need to be told what to do. So we've got a great guy who coordinates the whole girls section at Dunblane, but he doesn't then say to the coaches, right, this is what you need to be doing this week. And the coaches arrive and they've done the thinking for themselves and they work out, this is what I think we want to do this week. Now I take you back to hearts. And one of the differences that they've begun to, uh, see or one of the practices that they changed their previous practice was that um, Roger who's the head of the academy and his his senior coaching team would sit down and work out right what's the focus of coaching going to be next week so we're going to work on offsides we're going to work on set pieces we're going to work on xyz and what they started to do was to move away from that and they said to the coaches, so what we want you to do is to develop your coaching routine for next week based on what you think the priority is based on the performance from the previous week. So the impact of that for the coaches was they had more work to do because on the before it was, here's a ready-made approach, this is what you're going to do. So they had to do more thinking and they had to do more preparation. But the response was they absolutely loved it. They, because they were being given the responsibility, they could see much more clearly about what the need was. And therefore, the intervention was more effective uh, and the coaches had more satisfaction. Nice. And what a good one to end on. Uh, I think choice is critical. I think allowing um, some of the best stuff I see with leaders is they share the why. They probably. Um, talk about the what, you know, maybe ask some outcomes and then they let people fill in the how themselves with a right. appropriate level of stretch, support, guidance um, versus, I mean, I don't mean many people are like being micromanaged. I do meet some, so I'm not saying it's no one, but I yes. do meet some people that yep. have got to the stage where they need to be micromanaged. Well, let me, let me finish with a, a final story on this which is also a practice. So I live in Dunblane, okay, and uh, the tennis courts that Jamie and Andy 
started on her just at the bottom of the... Well, when the... you started telling the story earlier, you said there's a woman who lives nearby. I was assuming it was going to be, it was going to be their mum, but uh, it wasn't. Well, she, Jamie and Andy and particularly Judy have done fantastic things for this town. You know, so when we say, when I say I come from Dunblane, now people more likely to say, oh, home of Andy Murray or Judy Murray's or the Murray's rather than what they previously would have yeah. said. Anyway, so opposite the tennis courts is an Indian restaurant. And uh, we've lived here for about 10 years and I didn't particularly like this restaurant. So when we had a takeaway on a Friday night, we'd order our food from a restaurant in Sterling, which is like eight miles away. And so the bloke would drive literally past another Indian restaurant to get to us. So last summer I'd been out, I'd been, had a very special day playing golf at Glen Eagles that somebody else had paid for me. It was very nice. Four of us had gone out, had a great afternoon. And at the end of it, somebody said, oh, well, should we go for an Indy? And as you know, if people tend to do four lads together on a Friday night, let's go for an Indian. So they said, well, let's go to the one in Dunblane opposite the tennis courts. And I was like, yeah, fine, fine. Even though I didn't like it, as I don't like the food. So we sit down and imagine the scene, the lagers are put in front of us and then the, the menus come to us which are largely kind of, well, you don't need a menu because you know what you're going to choose. But then somebody said this, why don't we let the chef choose? Oh, right. And it wasn't me who said it. Why don't we let, let the chef choose? Okay. And everyone's like, oh, fine. So the waiter comes over. I'm a little said, bit stressed now, by the way. Right. Okay. So <laughs> hear the end of the story. Because it is, this is it. I'm giving up control. I want that. I want a chicken passander. I can't deal without that. Right. So the waiter comes over and he says, oh, right. Okay. Really? Did you? Um, we like a mixture of spicy and mild and give us a mixture of some fish and uh, meat. So the food comes out. It's the best Indian food I have ever tasted. Right. Uh, the stuff which I would never have chosen because I didn't know what it was, but it's fantastic. At the end of the meal, the chef comes out and says, who are the, who are the, who's the table who asked me to cook? He's got a smile the size of the Mersey on his face, right? He's happy, so happy. He said, thank you very much. It's a real honour to do it. Now, that for me was the perfect example of where we pushed authority to information. We gave the person with the most expertise in that restaurant the decision-making authority. And the outcome that we got was a much better outcome than if we, who thought that we knew, we thought that we were the experts, if we'd made the same decision. And so the practice that we encourage people to try is next time you, and it's maybe a bit different now, but next time you do go out for dinner or go out for lunch, get the chef to choose. It, that sounds like going out with my wife. <laughs> she, would, she would go, what can we share? Let's try something different. <laughs> chicken korma, chicken korma. <laughs> it's worried, man. Um, Peter, it's been a pleasure. If people want to reach out to you, where, where's, the, where's the best yeah. places? Just very simple. Peter at turntheshiparound.com is my email address or davidmarquet.com is the simplest website at the moment too access us through mate have a great day and um, you have a brilliant great start to the week russell cheers mate take care